Good morning. This is the fourth lesson in the uh, series entitled, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? And in the uh, uh, manner in which I do titles, this particular message is called, Are There Barnacles on the Bottom of Our Boat? Now, those of you who are not seafaring people may not understand that. When we were in Canada a couple of years ago, we were helping a friend take their boat out of the water for the winter, and one of the things that fell to me was to crawl underneath that boat, and it was rather cold at the time, and, and to, to scour off the bottom of the boat uh, just for all the things that had accumulated uh, during that particular season. They weren't barnacles, but it was stuff. And, and if you live near the salt water, you will discover that if you leave a boat in the water very long, that you will have an accumulation of things that begin to gather there. And let's just suffice it to say that they're not particularly helpful. And you can look back and say, how did they get there? Well, that is the way some traditions are in the church. In fact, I probably would venture to say it's the way most traditions are in the church. Uh, church history is, is, as I've said in the frame there, it's a, a mystery to many of us in this regard. Church history, and I, I have to confess to you, that was not probably my strong suit in, in seminary, and it, it should have been a stronger one, but, but church history, in my opinion, seems to follow the history of doctrine in the church, not how the church itself has behaved itself. So, Church history does not really tell us, here is why the church today is like it is in terms of the way in which we function. Uh, Church history doesn't tell us that well how the barnacles got on the bottom of the boat. We do know about significant events, especially significant theological and doctrinal discussions that took place that were crucial. But we don't know so much about why the church came to look and to behave as it does today. And that's why I think we need to give a a few moments to consider that. But I think we are in danger of assuming that the way in which we see church going on is the way in which the New Testament meant it to be. I don't know of any church that would say, we're not a New Testament church. But what they mean by that, of course... Uh, varies considerably. And many would think that being a New Testament church means we believe and we preach the New Testament. It doesn't mean that the church functions in the way you see it in the New Testament, and that's why this series, I think, is important. Well, let's talk about uh, our approach in this lesson. Uh, What I want to do is begin by talking about four of the most critical periods in the history of the church and how those periods tended to impact us as in terms of how we do church. Then I want to talk about some of the barnacles on the bottom of the boat. That is, what are some of those major areas uh, throughout these periods of church history where there was slippage, where there was deviation from the New Testament and areas which we ought to be sensitive toward and which we ought to correct as best as we can. Then the good, the bad, and the ugly, not in that order, uh, but the good, the bad, and the ugly in the sense of three kinds of tradition that we see in the New Testament. 
Tradition is not always bad, nor is it always good. And so we need to be able to differentiate. And there are some texts of Scripture that will help us to do that. And then we will, uh, we will conclude. So let's talk about the, the critical periods in the history of the church, the first of which being the church fathers. Now, I should probably confess to you at this point, I think you'll see an asterisk that will appear a time or two on the screen. Uh, my historical data comes primarily from a book called Pagan Christianity, with a question mark at the, at the end of that, by uh, Frank Viola and George Barnett. Interestingly, uh, Viola wrote this book initially, and George Barna, the one that always gets quoted, he came alongside and joined in and co-authored this revised edition. And there's a lot of material that has to do with the history of the church. And I want to confess to you right now that I'm, I'm borrowing heavily from that material uh, because they've done a great deal of research and there's a lot of footnoting that they do in their book. I wouldn't necessarily conclude in all the ways that uh, Viola does. Uh, he's really an advocate of house churches, and that's really where he wants to go and where his function is. I wouldn't go as far as he does, but I think that he does raise some concerns and objections. But let's talk about the church fathers, and I'm talking mainly about those from about 100, uh, which is when the last apostle roughly died, to uh, the 300s where you have the period of Constantine that comes. What's interesting to me is Viola does not make this one of those critical periods. He lists three periods, starting with Constantine. In my opinion, the critical problems began with the church fathers. Now, some of you may, may, may wish to, to, to carry on a discussion about that, but that's the way in which I see it. Some of the major departures from the New Testament in terms of how we do church started with the uh, the church fathers. But I want to say we owe these fellows a lot. And, and uh, many of these men died for their faith. And, and you don't want to speak ill of those who are martyrs for holding to the faith and the true doctrine. These are men who at times when, when, the, when the scriptures and doctrines needed definition... When these men stepped up to the plate and held their ground against some of the heresies that were being formed. And so we owe the fathers a great deal. Do not, do not misunderstand me in what I will say in terms of, of the debt of gratitude that we owe to them. But they were not apostles. They were not apostles. They could not say as the apostles of the New Testament said, thus saith the Lord. Now, I'm leaning on that point because there, there are those who, who want to say that the early fathers, because they were closest in time to the apostles, they must be more, more likely correct. I'm not sure that's true. In fact, I'm convinced in my own mind that it isn't necessarily true at all. Just because you were closer to the apostles doesn't mean you were right. Let's face it, folks. The New Testament church wasn't a pretty sight. Look at Corinth. There were all kinds of problems in the church. And there were all kinds of doctrinal deviations already emerging in the church at the time of the apostles. So the, the fathers, the church fathers, were not inerrant 
Uh, and just because they were closer doesn't mean they were more right. As a matter of fact, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, and it talks about the whole church growing up, there is a sense in which the church ought to be more mature now than it was then because of the ministry of the gifts and the building up of the church. So we have to be careful that we don't give these men too much authority. Sometimes there are those who will literally quote the fathers as though they are the authority and whatever they said must go. The problem is I don't agree with a good deal of or at least some of what they said. For example, let's just talk about uh, Ignatius for for uh, for an, an illustration of that. This comes from Viola and Barna's book on page 111. According to Ignatius, the bishop had ultimate power and should be obeyed absolutely. Consider the following excerpts from his letters. Plainly, therefore, we ought to regard the bishop as the Lord himself. All of you follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows the Father. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there will the people be, even as where Jesus may be. It is not lawful apart from the bishop either to baptize, to hold a love feast, but whatever he shall approve, this is well-pleasing to God. Well, that's enough. The bottom line is that in that period of time where men needed to stand tall, it was also a time where those men could have been exalted to a degree that was beyond what Scripture would permit or tolerate, and therefore the bishops were elevated by ordination and by other processes to where they were not like normal men. That was the mindset of many in those days. They were not like normal men. These were men who spoke for God like Moses did, and you better, you better do what they say. That, to me, is, is going beyond Scripture, and it's doing it early. So we have to be careful when we look at the church fathers, and we have to scrutinize the things that took place in that period of time. Okay, the reign of Constantine is the, is the next uh, major era. That is the one where uh, Viola begins in his uh, uh, looking at three major periods in the, uh, in the history of the church. And, and here's, here's, here's my take on what I saw. I, I have always tended to think that many of the great errors in the church started with Constantine. As, as I've looked and read, what I would say is, I think they were institutionalized with Constantine. I don't think they started then. I think you see the seeds of those errors with the apostolic fathers, with some of the apostolic fathers. And you see Constantine coming in, and, and there are those who would discuss whether or not he's even uh, among those who believe. He certainly came from pagan roots, as did his mother, and there's all kinds of discussion about all of the things that were brought in. But much of his pagan culture was institutionalized within the church. It seems to me you could probably call that period of time the birth of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. But it was the time when the church moved from the persecuted church to the privileged church. Many, in fact, within the church fathers, part of the problem was because many of them died. What do you do with those people who somehow may have compromised or whatever, and they survived this, you had this, this terrible period of persecution that took place prior to Constantine. And now all of a sudden, this sudden change of mood to where government is not oppressing Christians, but government is professing. Uh, I guess I would have to say, what happened then was what many Christians wish would happen today.
And I might just point out and underscore it wasn't particularly good to have what looked like a, a godly man at the top of the governmental heap. So there were a number of things that happened. Uh, the uh, Sunday was declared a holiday. Uh, there were exemptions from taxation of churches and from uh, priests. Um, there were a, a lot of things that were ceremonialized and, and, and made more professional so that you had in the, in the New Testament a more informal gathering of believers, it would seem. You had the building of these great church uh, structures often on the, the, the tombs of a martyr. Uh, and so you had really the institutionalization of the church in ways that weren't always good. A separate class of priests and the Eucharist, we would say the Lord's Supper, was the re-sacrificing of the death of our Lord, and that could only be done by the priest or the bishop. It, it was something that was restricted to a very uh, narrow group of leaders. That's the, uh, in a nutshell, that's the, the period of Constantine where the church moved to its privileged status. And that, of course, carried us into the Middle Ages. The next major phase is the phase of the Reformation. And there were many things that needed to be corrected, as you know, in the Reformation. But I think what we need to keep in our minds is that, that you had to pick what the major issues were. You, you could not wage a battle on every front. And so the major issues were the authority of Scripture as opposed to the authority of the church and its declarations. There was salvation by faith through grace as opposed to salvation through works. And, and, and so you had a number of things that were, that were fundamental uh, for the reformers, and they waged their battle on that front. But what I'm trying to say is, as good a job as they did on those vital areas, crucial areas, fundamental areas pertaining to salvation and scripture, they did not do particularly well when it came to the church itself. And what you discover is that during that period of the Reformation, there was some correction of, of the evils that took place, but many of the evils simply persisted on either unchallenged or renamed. And so there was much that was, that was not really altered. For example, let me, let me just give you this, especially those who, who love uh, people like Calvin and so on. The, the, the reformers were big in terms of the hierarchy of leadership of bishops and priests, well, at least priests uh, within the thing. And, and, uh, and you could not have, for instance, the, the, the sacraments, the Lord's table, could not be presided over by anybody but an ordained, duly authorized uh, figure, one of the, one of the clergy that, that had to perform that. The Anabaptists uh, believed that the laity in the church had a much more significant role. Folks, we would have been with them on this that the laity had a much more significant role in the ongoing work and ministry of the church, and they died at the hands of the reformers. Do not forget that. It was capital punishment to be an Anabaptist. You could be a believer in Jesus Christ and differ over this area of ecclesiology and die for it. So all I'm saying is, when we think of the reformers, it isn't all pretty. 
And, and some of those folks who died, died for the things that we believe to be true and biblical so far as the New Testament is concerned. Drop down to that next uh, frame and we'll say at least a few good things here for, for uh, Martin Luther. Uh, in sum, the major enduring changes that Luther made to the Catholic Mass were as follows. He performed the Mass in the language of the people rather than in Latin. He gave the sermon a central place in the gathering. And, and here, let me just make an aside. What happened from the Reformers was that in, in the Catholic Mass, everything built up, as it were, to the Eucharist, to, to, the, to the Lord's Supper. And the Catholic priests, you could not, the, the people would not partake of those elements. The priest would because he only was holy enough to do it. And so what happened with the reformers was that it changed and it became the sermon that was the climax of, of that uh, worship time. And, and in a sense, it didn't replace, but it did take priority in terms of emphasis over uh, the Lord's table. He entered his congregational singing. He abolished the idea that the mass was a sacrifice or a re-sacrifice of Christ. He allowed the congregation to partake of the bread and cup rather than just the priest, as was the Catholic practice. Other than these differences, Viola says, Luther kept the same order of worship as found in the Catholic Mass. So all I'm saying is, bless the Reformers for the changes that took place. But not everything that needed fixing got fixed. And the church came out on the short end of the stick, so to speak, in terms of how the church was to function. Oh, let's talk for a minute about the revivalist era. The Methodists, uh, George Whitfield, Finney, uh, Moody. Obviously, a, a, a lot of people got saved. A number of people got saved. That's a good thing. But uh, there were some things that uh, probably went astray as well. The emphasis was on evangelizing the lost. Huh, that's really good. But is that what you come together as the church to do? Is the church the preaching place where you preach to the lost and, and seek to win them to Christ? Emphasis on the individual. And, and rather than the emphasis on the, the body of Christ, and, and I, by the way, I see this in the, in the term the priesthood of all believers. I, I hear people saying the priesthood of every believer, and, and the thing that bothers me about that is when you start saying, I am a priest then you start speaking exclusively of other people and their involvement. It seems to me that when God spoke to the nation, to Moses about the nation Israel, he said, you will be a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom. So in that sense, the church is, has a priestly ministry. And all of us have a part in that ministry. But uh, there, there was, in the, in the revivalist period, there was a strong emphasis on the individual. And folks... We live in similar days. It's all about me, not about the church. Corporately, it's about me. How am I doing? How am I growing? How am I gaining from the church? Uh, emphasis on emotions. And, and I would say I can understand from what little I know and from what I've even seen, uh, it could be a pretty sterile kind of thing that maybe the reformers or other kinds of, of folks were doing in terms of their preaching. It was it was pretty, let's, let's just say cold. Maybe you like that word, maybe you don't. It, it could be pretty cold. And so I'm not surprised that somebody wanted to warm it up a little bit, but there was much more emphasis on emotions. The sad part of that is that it was the appeal to emotions 
that they felt was the key to salvation. In other words, if you can get the right music, you know, and you can get the right mood and you can do this little gimmick, then that's what's going to do it. I've seen some of that, and, and I have to say, it just doesn't turn my, my switch. So anyway, that, that was the way it took place. And as a result, it, it was a, a very much an emphasis on uh, methodology and, and manipulation and pragmatism. If it worked, if you could get somebody into the kingdom of God by one of those gimmicks, then it must be right. So it was a very pragmatic time, and that's obviously not a particularly good thing. Now let's talk about the departures of, from Scripture, and, and I'm talking now about those things that pertain to the church and how we do church that, have, that took place over this period of time through these various uh, historical uh, uh, times. It seems to me these are the areas that are areas for concern. Uh, movement from the priesthood of all believers to the priesthood of a very few, that is, a movement from, let's call it a lay uh, uh, involvement to very much let George, priest George, do it. So there was a, a movement to the, the sort of paid, set-apart, um, holier-than-anybody-else uh, 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 class of people who carried out ministry. A movement from the headship of Christ to human orchestration and, and, and really down to, in many cases, one person. If Jesus Christ is the head of the church, then when people come to church, they have to see that somehow, should they not? When we had our old building and another group was meeting in it, there was a queen's chair that sat right here. I, mean, I don't know what you call them, but, but it, you know, how I mean, everybody knows when they look at the chairs. It, like your kitchen table, you've got two captain's chairs on the end and then you've got the peon's chairs, you know, where all the kids sit. In the... Okay, it was that. And so the queen's chair was here and the other chairs. Nobody, when we met, nobody sat in that chair. And you know what? Rightly so. In, in a way, what we said is, that's, that's Jesus' chair. It's not ours. Nobody has greater standing before God. And therefore, everybody had their, their own normal kind of chair, and that chair just didn't get used in our service. From the headship of Christ to human leadership and orchestration. From plurality leadership, which is what you see in the New Testament, leadership of the church by a plurality of elders, to singular leadership. Okay, let's just say it. The pastor. And, and, and you had this movement to uh, an individual who became the spokesman and, and whatever uh, for that particular body of people. From informal participatory gathering to a highly structured one. In other words, when we come uh, this morning... And we come to worship, yes, we ask Keith. For those of you who may not know how it works, we ask Keith. We assign Keith. You start and you end. And that's about it, folks. In between, we don't have any idea what's going to happen. Now, that can be, I suppose for some people, that could be scary. And, and, uh, and yet, there is hopefully the opportunity that God may want to say something to us through somebody that we didn't expect or that we didn't assign. And so there's that spontaneous uh, nature that comes out of the way the church met. That looks very much like 1 Corinthians 14 to me. And yet what happened is the church got, got, got restrained more and more and more to where you had your order of service, folks, and nobody departed from that. And, and in fact, in this television world, 
you've got a script and folks, you better not depart for five seconds from what that script says. It's, it's very clear. It isn't always the pastor necessarily who sets that. Often now we have the worship leader and, and basically they're, they're telling us where, you know, where it's all going to go. I'm not saying God can't use that. I'm saying that's not what we see in the New Testament. I don't think it's ideal. From edifying believers to evangelizing the lost, from a corporate body focus to individual uh, emphasis and focus, and more disturbing perhaps, from a scriptural basis. What does the scripture say? How is it we are supposed to go about this? What pattern has been set for us? And it's just what works. And, and you look at this, folks, you go to the bookshelves. And if this guy has the newest, fastest growing church in wherever it is, they're buying those books and they're doing what that person does. And, and the sad part of it, it isn't even consistent with Scripture in the sense that if God has gifted people with different gifts, different blends of gifts, and different manifestations, then why do we think just because God blesses this particular ministry and that form of ministry that he's going to bless that if somebody imitates it? Everybody's got their own unique function to carry out. Well, enough of that soapbox. All right, departures from Scripture that took place, and we'll talk more about those particulars as we move ahead, but I think it's important to see that the history of the church has not really served us well in terms of holding to those things which the Scripture uh, set forth as very important for the church in its function. Traditions, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but not in that order. It's just that I had to say it that way. <clears throat> so let's look at the bad first. We uh, 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 had read, Al read for us uh, Mark chapter 7, but look particularly at verses 7 and 8. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men, having no regard for the commandment of God, you hold fast to human tradition. Here is... Human teaching that sets aside biblical teaching. Human revelation that sets aside God's revelation and, and tradition that comes to have its hold upon people. But what that tradition does is literally forces people to disobey. It, it isn't neutral. It's that it, it, it excuses disobedience in this specific instance. You have this Corban thing, and so when, when, a, when a, a child does not wish to fulfill their biblical responsibility to their, to their parents, then, then they've got an easy traditional out. And they simply say, this is devoted to God. I'm sorry, my bank account's devoted to God. Now, I can go buy a new boat or, or a new widescreen TV, but I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, I, I can't help you out with your monthly bills or your food. It, 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 it smelled. And, and, and what you have is this tradition becomes the excuse, the validation for disobedience. I guess that's about as uh, bad as it gets. The ugly. I'm thinking here of, of those traditions, those practices that are biblical, but they've lost their heart and soul. It's going through the motions. Now, even in that text in Mark chapter 7 that quotes from Isaiah 29, you've got that same theme played out there. And that is in, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, chapter 29, chapter 58, God's saying, I, I know, you go through fasting, you, you go through these rituals, it stinks. 
It stinks, God says. Not because you have, you have failed to do the things that I have told you to do, to offer your sacrifices, but because you don't have your heart in it. You're not really with me in this. You're just going through rituals. And I think this is especially a warning to us that when we have those traditions that I believe are biblical traditions, I'm speaking in the third category here in a moment, but those traditions which have been set down by the apostles, it is very easy for us to rest on those laurels and say, well, we do it right. And, and we can do those things. We can come and we can meet in just the right form and we can have elders rather than the pastor and we can do all that right stuff. But we can be smug and disobedient and in reality, some church that doesn't have our forms may be doing better functionally than we are. So we need to beware that just going through these forms is not enough and it's uh, pretty ugly sometimes. Traditions, the good. When you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Now, I, I, I stood on my soapbox and, and beat on the pulpit about the fact that the New Testament teaching is not just for a particular group of people in a particular place at a particular time. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 is not just for Corinthian women or whoever it is he's addressing at that moment. It's for everybody. And, and you see that clearly taught uh, throughout the, the New Testament, clearly by the Apostle Paul. So these are the, the things that Paul has set down in his teaching, in his epistles, so that what applies, uh, what, what's written to the Corinthians applies to those at Ephesus or, or any other place where the church is gathered. And, and uh, these are good things that they see, not only in terms of teaching, but practice. 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to send Timothy to you, and he's going to tell you of my ways, which I teach everywhere in every church. So, you want to know what the traditions are? We're going to talk about this next week. But you look at what the apostles taught, what the apostles commanded, and what the apostles practiced. That tells us what those traditions ought to be. Second, uh, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and just focusing on verse 15. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that we have taught you, whether by speech or by letter. Whether I spoke to you in person, Paul is saying, whether I wrote uh, by epistle, those are the traditions that you ought to keep and you do well to do so. That certainly says to me that there is a body of revelation that has been given to us to tell us how we would and should function as a church. And you remember in 1 Timothy 3, that's what Paul says. I've written these things to you, knowing that I, I'm going to come shortly, but I've, I've written these things so that you might know how to conduct yourselves in the church, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So he has given us the Lord has given us, through the apostles, those traditions that are to be observed as the church goes through the centuries. Conclusion. All right, now here's where I get to say all those things I was itching to say uh, along the way. A, much of what we think of the church's tradition based upon history uh, is based upon history and may well be pagan practices uh, and not on Scripture. 
That's what Viola's saying. Now, Viola's a little extreme, perhaps. But, but what he's saying is, when you look at all the things, the, the way in which people dress when they go to church, uh, the lay people and the others, when you look at, at the way in which the church is laid out and all of these various things, a lot of it had a pagan root. Now, he would even say, is it necessarily uh, wrong because of its roots? No. But when those practices somehow interfere with or overturn or set aside the traditions that we are given for how we do church, then that's a problem. And, and so we need to recognize a whole lot of what we conceive of as church. Just for example, in the popular use of the term, the, the, the word church is generally meant to mean the building. It's never used that way in the New Testament. It's never used of a building. So we've, we've come to think in ways that are not necessarily uh, uh, valid. It's amazing to me that when I watch uh, respected evangelical scholars and they talk about uh, Timothy as the pastor of the church at Ephesus, uh, there is nowhere, folks, there is nowhere in the New Testament where any man is referred to as the pastor in the sense that we use that word today. As one who shepherds, the elders are shepherds, yes. So that one could be a pastor in that, in that sense. But in the way in which we use it, it's assumed. And, and, and scholars come to the New Testament and they talk about this thing as though it's a given. And you're saying, well, pardon me for one moment, but where is that? It's in history, folks. Not here. History brought that to us. With a lot of other bad stuff. Uh, oh, I wanted to say, talk about how CBC started. I'm not saying that we do it right. And I'm not saying we don't make a lot of mistakes in trying to do it right. But I will tell you this. One of the things that we did right was for a full year before we started to meet as a church, we had a group of men, some of whom became elders and some of whom did not later in time. We had a group of men who met once a week and we talked our way through and studied our way through the New Testament because we wanted to be sure that what we were doing was not just reproducing the church from which we had come, as good as it was. And so we worked our way through. To the credit of the elders at Believer's Chapel, they asked me, as the last series I taught when I was preaching there, to preach on the New Testament church as we understood it. And to make it clear to the people who heard us how in any way we might differ from Believer's Chapel in our understanding of the New Testament church. So all I'm saying to you is we made an effort, whether we succeeded or not, we made an effort to say we're setting tradition aside. We're going back to the New Testament. We're looking at all of these issues and saying to ourselves, how does the scripture say we should do it? And, and I think that is where all of us really must be in our minds, in our mindset. Revelation chapter 2 Verse 5, I know it's not, speci- I, I'm, I'm uh, allegorizing or, or some terrible thing, that, that breaking some rule here, but where he says to the church that you've lost your, your, your first love, and then he says, remember the things from which you have fallen. And, and, and I think there's a corporate application of that to the, to the church and how it pract- it, it, it's practicing, how it does church. I think the scriptures are saying to us, okay, so you've been through 2,000 years of history, uh, you got a lot of barnacles on the bottom of that boat. Remember from where you have fallen. 
And where we have fallen is from the New Testament. If we failed, it's we failed to understand and implement the Scriptures. And so it's simply saying to us, go back to the Scriptures and see how they say it is to be done and then do it. Do it. Uh, all of us and, and, and those of us who may think we're further down the path than others, we're going to find that there were points that we deviated and we just need to go back. Confess, repent, go back, do it right. We need to beware of taking pride uh, or in finding a false security in just doing it the right way and looking down our noses at others. Oh, that last point there, barnacles continue to grow. <laughs> Have you noticed that? You leave the boat in the water and there's, still, there's going to be more barnacles coming. What I'm saying is, are there barnacles now? Are there barnacles beginning to grow that we need to deal with? You know, when you, when you look back, I think, if you look back throughout church history, in fact, if you look back, if you've ever studied, I was tempted to go into the blue laws, you know, where those, those laws that just don't seem like they have anything to do with us today. But when you go back to that point in time when that law was passed, it made sense. It made sense then. And so what I would suggest to you is, Barnacles just don't come about uh, without any awareness on our part at all. Barnacles come along because we say, I, here's our circumstances, and, and uh, I know what the Bible says, but, you know, I think we just need to make a, very, a little modification, a little variation here, and, and it, it isn't very significant, whatever. That's how barnacles grow. And, 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 and especially, I would say, in this age of of seeking to adapt and accommodate our culture, that, that's where the barnacles race to the boat. Because we start saying to ourselves, well, we know, but, you know, people feel more comfortable when, when for instance, uh, in the homogeneous church philosophy, when you have people that are all kind of alike. Sorry, it doesn't work that way in the New Testament church. And you better not move that way because it's wrong. And the other thing I was thinking this morning about that whole culture thing is, if the church is to be a place where there is a diversity, if the church is to be a place where, God willing, we see Muslims coming to faith, then we want them to come to our church. And the question is, have we so adapted ourselves and adjusted ourselves to our culture, not scripture, to our culture, that people don't feel at ease, not because we're biblical, but because we have accommodated culture. It seems to me that's a problem. Our brother overseas in the Middle East has talked about how people who come out of uh, a, a certain background will find it very difficult to identify with another group of people from the same country with a different background. That shouldn't be. Christians should be able to gather together and meet. And those cultures ought to converge because biblical principles don't uh, keep that from happening. They facilitate that. Biblical principles are universal, and they may have some little modifications in the way in which they appear, but not modification from principle. And so anywhere you go in the world, you ought to see a church that operates under the same basic set of, of givens and not some uh, new set. All right. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there just because I'm getting worked up and it's, and it's time for us to close. But look for barnacles on the bottom of the boat. We ought to be constantly vigilant. And we ought to be aware of the fact that church history has brought us a lot of stuff that needs to be challenged. 
that needs to be evaluated and we need to go back to the scriptures. One more thing, one last thing I want to say. What happens to churches corporately happens to Christians individually. May I ask if there are barnacles on the bottom of your boat? I suspect so. I suspect that over time, over time, that we have accumulated certain mindsets, certain attitudes, certain ways of going about things that are not really biblical. They're just the way we've come to do them. Because at some point in time, it seemed like the right thing to do. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. And you have certainly told us all we need as far as it comes to the church. Help us, Father, to, to, to really look at the way in which we do things and the reason for which we do things. Ask ourselves whether we are truly biblical, truly New Testament. It isn't just those forms, but it's attitudes. It's a mindset that we want that is the mind of Christ. Help us to have that individually and as a body of believers. Father, it's possible there's someone here this morning who is not really a part of the church. They've never come to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. They've not acknowledged their sin and the fact that they deserve an eternity apart from you and they are destined to it apart from your grace. May they trust in the Lord Jesus, the head of the church who gave his life to forgive us for our sins. In Jesus' name. Amen.